Father, thank you for the morning. Thank you for the exaltation of Christ we've been reminded of. His significance, His power, His authority, His saving grace and salvation in multiple ways. We've been reminded through Scripture. We've been reminded through prayer. We've been reminded through testimony, through baptism, through song. That Christ alone is our means of salvation. And because of Christ, all glory goes to Him and to you. And we dare not attempt to take the glory for ourselves, for there is nothing that we can do on our own that makes us right before you. An astounding Savior we have. And we have gathered to worship because of Him. And we have gathered to worship Him. And so might you be pleased now as we open His book, the revelation about you and about Him that has been granted to us through the work of the Spirit and the pens of men, your inerrant, unfailing, unfallible word. word. And so would you guide us to understand it so that what is... What is true and right and accurate would be conveyed with your accuracy for your exaltation. So guide my lips, give me clarity, and give us transformation, for that's the goal. It's not just about the preaching of the Word and the explanation of a passage. It's about the explanation of a passage to the transformation of the heart. And so would you work that in us this morning, even particularly giving us confidence in you. So would you guide our time together? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Jean Calment was born in 1875 in Arles, France. When she was 13, Vincent van Gogh came to her hometown in Arles and she met him, though, truth be told, she didn't like him or his paintings. She stopped riding her bicycle in 1975 at the age of 100. In 1995, when she was a spry 120 years old, the New York Times wrote about her, Calment might as well have stepped out of a time machine. When she was born, Victor Hugo was still alive and Marcel Proust was just a boy. Alexander Graham Bell had yet to invent the telephone. The gas-powered automobile, the airplane, and the use of electrical power all lay in the future. Quote, I see badly, I hear badly, I can't feel anything, but everything's fine, she says. (laughs) When asked what kind of future she expects, she said, short, very Short. She had about two and a half years left. She died in 1997 at 122 and a half. At that age, you start adding the half back in, don't you? While there was no New York Times reporter available to ask the Israelites what they thought about their situation when Judah returned to Israel from Babylon in it, in, from their captivity there, Given the fact that after they laid the foundation and then that foundation lay dormant for 15 years for the temple, um, I believe that the average citizen in Judah might have responded similarly if asked by a reporter, what do you think about your future? I think they might have said, our future is short, very short. They were despondent, discouraged, dispirited about their future. And I know you don't know anything about those kinds of feelings. Everybody's just chipper and happy about the way the world is going these days, aren't they? That's one reason this book is for us as well. Our political and social 
Situations may vary in preciseness, but the air is the same. Will God fulfill His promises and will He keep us? And so to encourage a newly returned citizens who had gone back to Judah from Babylon, as well as to encourage those who had stayed in Judah during the Babylonian captivity, for there was a large number that did just that, Zechariah was given a series of prophecies to encourage Judah about the future and to exhort them to continue the work of rebuilding the temple. And in the opening six chapters of this book, Zechariah reveals eight visions that were given on the night of the 24th day of the 11th month in the second year of Darius, which we happen to be able to figure out to be on the night of February 15, 519 B.C., And on that night, he received these eight visions that he tells us about in these first six chapters. And the second and third visions, which are in this section that was read earlier from 118 to 213, build on that first vision. In fact, it's kind of weird. You're thinking, why is he going across a chapter break like that? Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, the first chapter ends at verse 17 of chapter 1. And chapter 2 begins in 1.18 and runs through 2.13, which is actually 2.17 in the Hebrew Bible. And I've been playing mental gymnastics about trying to keep my verses straight all week. And so in the Hebrew Bible, 1.18 to 2.13 is actually one chapter, and it's the entire second chapter. Uh, I'm taking these as a unit because they build on the first vision So the second vision that is from 118 to 121 in our Bibles builds on and expands God's anger against the nations, which is revealed in the first vision in 115. I am very angry with the nations who are at ease. For while I was only a little angry, they furthered the disaster. They they continued to make the trouble for Israel even greater And in the second vision now, we're going to see what God does because of his anger. But not only is he angry against the nations, that first vision also tells us that he is committed to fulfilling his promises to Judah. And that's the third vision that amplifies what he says in 114. So the angel who was speaking to me said, proclaim saying, thus is the Lord of hosts. I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. And the second vision in 2, 1 to 13 is going to build on that idea of God's jealousy and his protection and his provision for his people. And so we're going to take these in concert, which united address 113. The Lord answered the angel who is speaking with me gracious words and comforting words. These two visions build on this idea of comfort. How will the nation, when they are dispirited and discouraged, they're still oppressed, how will they receive comfort? And it's a good question for us as well. When we are dispirited, as we look into the culture and see what's going on, where will we find our comfort? And where will we find our hope? And here, what we will find in this passage is this, that God comforts by the revelation of His plans for judgment and blessing. There's a judgment coming against the nations. There's a blessing coming for Israel, and that's our comfort. God hasn't forgotten. God hasn't been rendered unable or incapable. He is able, and He will remember. If you're following along in your outline, I discovered this morning, well, I had reaffirmed for me this morning my inability to count. So one plus one is... 2 and 2 plus 1 is 3. I forgot that. And so in your outline, your outline says under number 1 what Zechariah saw in the first vision. I forgot there was one already that we talked about. It should be the second vision. So bear with me and my inability to count this morning. I've corrected it on the PowerPoint. What did Zechariah see in the second vision? Notice 118. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked. That word then is actually just a simple conjunction and. And you might just overlook it, but I think what 
Zechariah is intending us to see is that while there are eight visions and they are distinct and they have distinct messages, there is connection between them. And most of the visions begin with that conjunction. And he's reminding us that there's a connectedness between these visions. And that is certainly or particularly true about the second and third vision following the first vision. What is it that he saw in this vision? It's a very simple vision. I lifted my eyes and looked and behold, verse 18, there were four horns. Like the first vision, there seems to be an emphasis here on the four horns. We're going to see four horns in verse 18, verse 20. We're going to see another part of this vision, four craftsmen. So four horns, four craftsmen. If you remember in the first vision, how many horses were there? Okay, so like three of you are, are, are awake and the rest of you are sleeping. There were four horses in the first vision. And if you go to the last vision in chapter 6, there are again four horses in vision number 8. Well, he doesn't understand the exact meaning of the horns. He's going to ask the question about what they mean a little bit later he would have understood at least something about the broad meaning of horns because it was a a common figure that was used in the Old Testament. Animal horns, which is what's in view here, um, typically had a figure and a symbology relating to power and to pride. They, They demonstrated military power and military might and even were used often to ascribe strength and power and authority that belonged to God. And so we read, for instance, in Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation. He is the power and the might and the authority of my salvation. We will find something similar in Psalm 89, where the psalmist says in verse 17, Speaking about the nations, um, the nations are mighty, he says in verse 11, the heavens are yours, the earth is also yours, the world and all it contains, the north and south. Uh, you have created them, Tabor, Hermon, shout for joy at your name, etc. How blessed are the people who know the joyful sound, O Lord, they walk in the light of your countenance. Verse 17, for you are the glory of their strength. So God is glorified in the strength of the nations. And by your favor, our horn is exalted. So while we are oppressed by the nations, our strength is rooted in you. We also find a a similar kind of a picture that when a horn is removed or a horn, uh, an animal is dehorned, as it were, or a horn is shattered, it denotes a defeat. So, for instance, in Psalm 75, he says, All the horns of the wicked he will cut off, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. So the power and authority of the nations will be destroyed. God will cut them off like he's dehorning an animal but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. The power and authority of the righteous will be exalted. So he would have had that understanding. That was a common image. Though he doesn't understand specifically what do these horns mean. He also saw along with these horns, verse 20, four craftsmen. The word craftsman is generic. It refers typically to someone who works with metal, perhaps a blacksmith in this instance. So the suggestion is perhaps that these horns were not animal horns, but they were the shape of animal horns that were created by a blacksmith. So perhaps they were iron. That is logical. I'm not fully convinced that's what it is, but it certainly is a possibility that the craftsmen correspond to the horns in that Someone crafted the power and authority of these horns and the craftsmen are coming along to correspond to and overwhelm them. That's the first vision. Four horns, four craftsmen. So the question is, well, what does that mean? And we have the meaning given to us in verses 19 and 21. As with the first vision, 
Zechariah, though may he understands perhaps the broadness of the meaning, doesn't understand the specificity of the meaning. Meaning, And so he says in verse 19, So I said to the angel who was speaking with me, remember he had an angel that was given to him in verse 9 that was provided by God to give understanding of these visions. And so he says again to the angels, I don't get it. What are these? And he answered, These are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. These are the powers. These are the authorities that have scattered Judah, Israel, Jerusalem. Verse 21, he's going to expand that just a little bit. Notice the middle of the verse. He says, the craftsmen have come to throw down the horns of the nations, the power of the nations. And so these are the horns. These are the nations that have scattered And notice he specifies Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And by that he means the southern two tribes, Judah, Judah and Benjamin, and the northern ten tribes, which are also known as Israel, so from south to north, and the central power of of the nation, civically as well as religiously, Jerusalem, all of that has been scattered by the nation. And so he's denoting by that that the nations have come in and there's been a thorough south to north, full completeness, the nation is scattered. That scattering has the idea of being winnowed. That word is often used of winnowing grain, separating wheat from chaff. And I think here what he means us to see is this picture of the nation has been winnowed from its land. And so the people and the land have been separated from one another. They've been scattered away. And it's total. No one escapes. Now, the question you're probably asking is, so who are the horns? Who's he talking about? Which four nations? Numerous commentators relate this to Daniel's visions of the horns in Daniel 2 and verse 7, suggesting that they are Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Uh, That would seem to make some measure of sense, except that he says in uh, verse 19, these are the horns which have scattered past tense. And um, at least Greece and Rome had not yet participated in that scattering. So that breaks down a little bit. So some amend that and say, well, it's not... It's not Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, but instead it's Assyria, Egypt, Babylon, and Medo-Persia. And that's certainly a possibility. I think it's probably better to see it more generically. Remember in the first vision there were four horses. And where did the four horses go? Four horses went throughout the world, right? Verse 10, the man standing among the myrtle trees answered and said, these are, whom, these are those whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. Verse 11, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth is peaceful and quiet. So the four horses went all around the world. And similarly, we see the four horses in the last vision in chapter 6 also going to the four corners of the earth, probably to the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west, all around the earth. They went everywhere. And I think what he means us to understand by these four horns is that it's, it's all the nations that have always been oppressing Israel. It refers to the completeness that all the earth, all four points of the compass are been, have been against Israel. From the beginning of the nation, returning to Egypt, excuse me, returning from Egypt in the Exodus until the day of Zechariah, Israel had always been in a struggle against the nations. And these four horns represent the constancy and the completeness of the opposition of Israel. It's all the world, all the earth against Israel. Now, corresponding to these four nations, he's given us four craftsmen. And so what is that? vision mean and notice what notice what Zechariah asks verse 20 the Lord showed me four craftsmen what would you ask the Lord shows me four craftsmen what would you ask who are they and that's not what he asks notice what he does verse 21 
What are these coming to do? He's not concerned about their identity. He's concerned about what they'll do. And that's the importance of that vision. Not their identity, but what they've come to do. Notice what they're coming to do. Not just what they're coming to do, but what they're coming to do in response to the nations and what the nations have done. And so he says, verse 21, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts his head. In other words, God says, the scattering, the winnowing of, of Judah and Israel has been so great that, that the oppression is so great that no man can lift his head. They're just bowed down in humility and submission and in brokenness. And along with that, don't miss the fact that God sees the oppression. He's not ignorant of what's going on in the world. He sees it. He's aware of it. And he's going to respond in appropriate time. These are the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. They want to keep Israel, Judah broken down. They're relentless in their attempt to destroy God's chosen people. Israel, in our language, we would just say they were beaten down. And so who are these craftsmen? The craftsmen, he says, have come, the middle of the verse, to terrify them, the horns, the nations, and to throw down the horns of the nations. So the nations had scattered Judah and Israel. And God says in this vision, I will terrify you and I will throw you down. You, you think a scattering is a big deal? I will throw you down. I will vanquish you. I will destroy you. Every enemy nation that opposes Israel and Judah will thoroughly, finally be defeated, vanquished. The nations have beaten down Israel, but they will in turn be destroyed with an even greater punishment. Now, you might still be asking, yeah, but who are the craftsmen? Well, if you see the horns as Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, then the craftsmen are Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and Messiah. So they're the subsequent nations that supplant the previous nations and then the one who will supplant them all, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Again, I think that sees it too narrowly um, because God doesn't identify the horns of the craftsmen. I think we should be really cautious about identifying them and simply say this is God's plan to destroy and vanquish the nations to demonstrate he wins. Now, most of these visions have what is called an oracle section. We'll see that in verses 6 to 13 following the third vision. And those oracle sections, in a sense, apply the vision. And there is no oracle section in this vision. It just ends, and then he moves into the third vision. But there are some things that we can take away and make observation about God from this vision. And the first is this. This vision is a promise of the full restoration of Judah and Israel. No matter the appearance, when Israel and Judah were being oppressed, the, those nations would not be victorious. God would overwhelm them, and God would exalt Himself, and God would exalt His people. Way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God says, I'm bringing a king, and he's going to come out of the Davidic line, and he's going to rule and reign on the Davidic throne for all eternity. A little bit later... In Revelation 19, from the passage that we read to begin the service, John writes this, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a rope dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, 
so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Another chapter later, John writes, 20 verse 4, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was given to them and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshipped beast, the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This vision is a reminder that a Messiah is coming who will vanquish the nations. Yes, the nations are in rebellion. And yes, they are relentless in their rebellion. And they don't win. And Christ does. This vision is a promise that the nations will be vanquished because God is just And he will pour out his righteous retribution. He is not only angry against sin. He is not only angry against the injustice that's being committed against Israel and Judah. But he will pour out his wrath. It's something that pouring out of his wrath is not a new promise. It's a promise that has been given virtually since the beginning of creation. Listen to the words of Moses. Deuteronomy 32. Vengeance is mine, God says. Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time, their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. Vengeance is mine. I will repay and it's coming soon. You can rest in that. You can trust that. He will hold all sinners, all sinning nations accountable for their sins. Along with that, Israel can trust that God would not let injustice rule. He knows of Israel's suffering. He's not unaware He sees it all. He saw it all. He sees it all. And he will not let a single injustice escape his wrath. This vision ends much as the first one did. Judah has faced opposition from many places. But Judah should be encouraged and God's people should be encouraged and hopeful that God will be just with the nations. He will do what is right. We don't see it happening today. But that doesn't mean it won't. It will. He will do what is right for Israel. He will do what is right for us as well. Notice as well the third vision and what Zechariah saw in it. Then again, that's the word and, and he's connecting it to the second vision and likewise to the first vision. And I lifted up my eyes, though he doesn't use that phrase in every one of the visions. I believe in five, perhaps six of these visions, he uses a similar terminology. Uh, Then I lifted my eyes or the angel told me to lift my eyes. I looked up and that's an indicator that a new vision is beginning. Then I lifted my eyes and I looked and behold, there was. A man with a measuring line in his hand. We have already seen the measuring line. We saw that in 116, where God says, I will return to Jerusalem with compassion. My house will be built in it and a measuring line will be stretched over Jerusalem. So this is the second time we've seen that measuring line. The measuring line in verse 16 of chapter 1, is set out to define the parameters of the temple and the placing of the temple in the the arena of Jerusalem. So where will it be? How will it be positioned? In what location and what direction will it be placed? And here it's a little bit more broad than that. 
He says in verse 2, So I said, Where are you going? To the man with the measuring line. And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And that he is measuring Jerusalem is a reminder to us of the significance and importance of Jerusalem. We saw way back in Second Chronicles chapter 6 that Jerusalem would be the place of God's habitation, that it was God's holy city. It was the place where, from which his king would rule for all of eternity. And that the measuring line and the measuring tool was used as the same reason we use a measuring line today. It's to establish locations in a city, to know where to build, to know what the parameters are of the places that we're wanting to build and what we're going to need in order to build. It sets out what we're going to need for tools and materials and so on. It's, it's the first step of the building process. And so when the angel said that it was to measure Jerusalem, it was an encouragement to him that not only would the, would the temple be rebuilt, but the entire city would be rebuilt. It's his way of saying, I've not forgotten about Jerusalem. I've not forgotten about the importance of this city. The city will be rebuilt, rebuilt. And you may be wondering, okay, who's this guy with the measuring tape? Who is that man? Again, notice, that's not Zachariah's concern. He's not concerned about the identity of the man with the measuring tape. He is concerned about what he's going to do. What's important is not the identity of the man, but the identity of the man's work. We do know that the man isn't the angel. We do know that the man isn't the second angel that we're going to see momentarily in verse 3. We also know it's not Zechariah. Some have suggested that it's the Lord of hosts or the, excuse me, the, um, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ. It's a possibility except God doesn't tell us. And I don't think he means us to know. It's just really not essential. So if that's the word that's running around, or the question that's running around in your head, lay it aside because that's not what God would have us to fixate on in this vision. What is important is what he does. And then notice as well what he says in verses 3 and 4. Now behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out and another angel was coming out to meet him. And he said, run, speak to that young man. Now, the young man is Zechariah. So the angel is the angel that's talking to Zechariah has started to walk away. Another angel shows up and says to that angel, go back to that young man, Zechariah, and give him a message. And what the vision is designed to tell us is the importance of the message. What's significant is not who's measuring but what's significant is what the message is. And it's important, not just because of what is said, but from whom it comes. And from whom does it come? Well, it comes immediately from the angel. But what's the angel? The angel is simply a messenger. In fact, that's what the word means, messenger. From whom is he carrying the message? From the Lord of hosts. The message is coming from God. What's important is what he says. And what he says is in verses 4 and 5, and he gives in verses 4 and 5 the meaning of this vision. Run with urgency. Speak to that young man, Zechariah, saying, here's the message. Jerusalem will be inhabited. Great news. He's measured it out. He's got the location. He knows where the temple's coming. It's going to be inhabited. It's going to be rebuilt. But watch what he says next. It will be inhabited without walls. First part of the message is that after measuring it, it was determined. No walls. Why no walls? Notice verse 4. Because of the multitude of the men and the cattle within it, the place where the city is going ain't big enough to hold everybody. Bad grammar, but well said, right? It's not big enough. We need a bigger location. Now, think about this for just a minute. Why do you need walls? Well, you need walls 
to keep the people and especially the cattle in, right? I mean, I'm not a cattle man, but I know that if you don't have a wall or a fence, the cattle just kind of wander off wherever the grass grows, right? And so one day you have 100 cattle and the next day you've got 90 and the next day 80 and it's diminishing returns. That's one reason. Second reason for walls is to keep the bad guys out and the good guys in. It's protection. And the message is, for the first time in the history of Jerusalem, she doesn't need protection. She's safe. There's no danger of losing the cattle. There's no walls that are needed for protection because the messianic king will protect his people. Now think for just a moment about this prophecy. Zechariah is writing this, remember, to encourage the people. Rebuild the temple and ultimately through Ezra and Nehemiah, Rebuild the walls around the city, right? And the walls do get rebuilt under Nehemiah about 75 years later. It's interesting, 75 years later, in 445 B.C., Nehemiah tells the people, rebuild the walls. And they do rebuild the walls. So for that 75-year gap, the people were in the land, And they were without walls, and God protected them. So we find a partial fulfillment of this prophecy in that 75 years. But the walls were rebuilt in 445 B.C., and essentially for two and a half millennia, the walls have remained in place. You go to Jerusalem today, and there are still walls around the city. I've walked those walls. And so there's still walls. What's interesting as well is the prophecy here says the nation is just going to be bursting at the seams. You can't put up a wall. It's just too many people. The blessing is too great. Listen to what Nehemiah says. Nehemiah chapter 7 about that situation. Nehemiah chapter 7 verse 4. Now the city... Jerusalem was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt. In fact, in chapter 11, they have to they have to create a lottery to get people to move into the city to inhabit the city from the rest of the nation. And so, while this was an encouragement to the people, God's going to protect you. I think this vision is still looking forward to a future time when that city will be inhabited and it will be magnificent and bursting with people and with prosperity and no walls. Because God is there protecting. This is, this is supposed to be a great encouragement to the people. Don't just look at your circumstances, he says to them, as they are today. Remember the nature of God and His promises and be confident. He's building His city and you can rest in that. And we also do well to remember things similarly. The walls of morality are broken in our world. And the gathering of God's people certainly doesn't seem to be bursting at the seams, does it? In fact, you look at Not only what is happening in the world, but what is happening in much of what calls itself the church today. And and that is dispiriting. Because it just doesn't seem like a gathering of God's people. But that's not the final story. You ever use the phrase, the world is really broken. I I won't say that I say it every day. But it just seems like pretty close to every day. There's something that comes across across my path and I just say the world is just horridly broken. But that's not the final word. The final word is restoration. The final word is wholeness. 
God's coming to build his people, to build his nation, to restore Israel and Judah to all that he promised it would be. And we can be sure of that because of verse 5. For I, it will be inhabited, Jerusalem will be inhabited by a people that is bursting and it won't have to have walls because I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her. Notice, he does not say, I will build a wall. You don't have to build it, I will build a wall. He doesn't say, I will build a wall. He doesn't say, I will build a spiritual wall around the city. What does he say? I am the wall. I'm the protector. You don't need a wall. Because I am the protector. And notice he says as well, not just I am the wall. He says, I am a wall of fire. When I say a wall of fire, and you think figuratively, fire protecting, enveloping the city, guarding the city. Does that create any other images in your mind of big things of fire? Things is a technical word. Remember Israel when she left Egypt? And the fire and the cloud that led her. That fire and the cloud, we're told in Exodus, they're given to provide light Direction, guidance to the people. Exodus 14 tells us that fire was also the protection for Israel. Nehemiah reflecting back on the pillar of fire that led Israel also indicated that it meant his presence. And so when he draws out this image, the wall of fire, I think he means us to understand, I'm here, I'm with you. I'm guiding you and I am protecting you. I am everything you need me to be to survive. You don't need anything else. Jerusalem has a wall of fire around her. And she is safe. She has everything. But notice this as well. Not only is the wall of fire around her, but then he says at the end of verse 5, I will be the glory of In her midst. Not only is God's glory around the city. God's glory is in the city. It's just permeating everything. About the nation of Judah and Israel. It it transcends everything. We know that in the temple. We've already alluded to this. In 116. That that God's glory is going to return. To the rebuilt temple. And that day is coming. But he says he's in this verse. He says he's not just in the temple. But he's in the city. By the end of the book. He's all through the land. God's glory permeates everything. This is God's declaration. Everything is mine. And I'm coming. To be with my people. To bless them. And protect them. I'm going to change the image a little bit. And this, this pales in comparison. But maybe at least it can help you with the empathetic understanding. Remember when you were like four years old. And you went with mom and dad for a day trip. Maybe you went to visit some family across town. Or maybe in Fort Worth. Or maybe a hundred miles away. You spent the day with family. And you had a great day. And you pile back into the car and um, you get ready for the trip home and it's dark. You've had a full day, belly full of homemade ice cream, etc. And you lay down on the back seat because back in those days there were no such things as mandatory seatbelt laws and that's what moms and dads did. And you lay down in the back seat. Maybe some of you lay back in the window um, because I know that happened for some of us. And you're driving down the road and you're hearing the click, 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 click click, click, of the tires across the road. And you see the light passing by as you're going underneath street lights. And you're hearing mom and dad just talking softly in the front seat. And you fall asleep, contented and at peace. You're comforted. Were there dangers still available outside that car? Oh, sure. 
There were rainstorms. The first years where I lived, there were snowstorms and blizzards that could have come. There were still possibilities of drunk drivers and accidents. There were still evil people outside who could have done harm if you'd stopped. But you were contented and safe because you were trusting in your dad who was protecting you. That pales in comparison to what Zechariah would have the Israelites to understand. God, you're protecting. Yes, there's still bad things outside. But God's protecting you. He's got you. You're safe. What would we learn from these visions about God? Verses 6 to 13 provides an oracle, a demonstration about God's character, nature. It's, it's Zechariah's admonition based on this vision that's just been given. Verses 6 and 7, we learn that captivity is not final. Restoration is final. So he says, verse 6, Ho there. That's just a, a way of capturing attention. Hey there, wake up. Flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord. In other words, flee from Babylon. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. In other words, I dispersed you to all the parts of the world. I've scattered you all over. And your some of you, this is implying some of you are still in Babylon. You've been given the right to leave. And you didn't leave. And it's time to come back. He says the same thing in verse 7. Ho, Zion... Zion can refer to the temple, it can refer to Jerusalem, it can refer to Judea or Israel at large, and I think that's what he means here. Ho, Zion, escape you who are living with the daughter of Babylon, you who are still living in captivity. Escape. Why? Because captivity isn't your end. Restoration to the land is. And it's time to repent and return. And we don't know why some of them didn't leave. Perhaps they were fearful about leaving Babylon. Perhaps they liked Babylon. Perhaps there were things in Babylon that were appealing to them and they delighted in those things. Whatever the reason, he says, it's time to repent and it's time to come home. It's time to leave captivity and it's time to come to restoration. They needed to act in faith. And they needed to trust God to be their protector. And the same thing is true today. God is offering salvation for all sinners. But we need to act in faith and trust Him and follow Him in obedience. Some of us, if you are not in Jesus Christ, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're not a follower of Christ, if you don't know that your sins have been forgiven, if you're not certain of your salvation, you've clung on in some way to a Babylon and said, this is okay, this will sustain me. And brother, friend, you need to leave your Babylon and come to the place of restoration, which is to be found in the Messiah who will rule over Judah and Israel, Jesus Christ. And find your salvation in Him. You must leave your sins and seek forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And then, being forgiven by Him, live for Him, much as the nation of Israel was called to live in the city of Jerusalem for God. Living for Him, living for Christ, obeying Him and delighting in Him. And again, I think as of as in verses 4 and 5, Zechariah is not looking here only at what's going on in this situation. He's looking even beyond the immediate circumstances and looking into the future, which is still future to us, to a final restoration. It's time to come home. It's time to come to a Savior whose name is Messiah, Jesus Christ. There's a second thing that divisions teach us about God, and that is that rebellion is not final. 
retribution is final. Verse 8, some have said, is the most difficult verse in, the new, in, this, in this book to understand. And it's difficult to understand because trying to figure out who the pronouns refer to and who's speaking. And I think the best way to render it is something like this. Thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent me. Some of your translations are going to have me in a capital, like capital M-E, referring to God. And some of them, like the New American Standard, have it as a small m, indicating it's not God. And I think that's the way it should be taken. Um, It doesn't really make sense for the Lord of hosts to say, after glory, He has sent me Himself against the nations to plunder you, though later we do see the Messiah speaking, or what seems to be the Messiah. I think what He's saying here is simply something like, Thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory or for the purpose of his glory, he has sent me, Zechariah, to the nations. The word against can be translated to, to the nations which plunder you to declare. What does he declare? He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You're messing with God's precious people. And it's like poking God in the eye. And you just Don't do that. He's going to pour out his retribution on you because you've harmed his most precious possession. And what is he going to do? Verse 9, Behold, I will wave my hand over them. I think this is still Zechariah still speaking. Zechariah says, As simply as I might wave my hand over the nations, they will be plunder for their slaves. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me with this message. They're going to be plundered. They who have been plundering, destroying, pushing Israel down so that they're humbled and bowed down and can't get up, dispirited. They're going to be plundered by their own slaves, vanquished. I don't know about in your house, but in my house, when I had four-year-olds, one of the favorite sayings that went around the house was, Dad, it's not fair. Dad, it's not fair that you get more ice cream than I do. I thought that was entirely fair. (laughs) Or whatever. It's not fair. And today, 44-year-olds say, it's not fair that that judicial judgment came down the way it did. It's not fair. It's not right. And I think all of us in our heart of hearts are prone to thinking It's not fair. It won't work out right. Justice won't prevail. We're prone to fearing that injustice wins. And this is God's declaration. That justice wins. Not injustice. A final teaching. Lament is not final. Praise is final. We're prone to lament. We're prone to complain. And so he reminds us in verse 10, reminds the people of Judah, sing for joy and be glad. Now think about their situation, right? They're back in the land, but there's so much oppression and so much opposition that they, they're afraid to even rebuild the temple, the place of worship. And in the midst of that, in the midst of their despondency, he says, sing for joy, sing joyfully. Why in the world would they sing for Verse 10, middle of the verse. For, behold, because I am coming. I'm coming. And in fact, it has the idea not just of a promise, but I'm already on the way. The door's been opened, as it were. I am coming and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. The king who came to be with his people, Emmanuel, will live with his people for all eternity. And not only will he live with his people, but notice verse 11. Many nations 
will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Those nations, people from among those nations that have just experienced his condemnation and wrath, many from those nations will be enfolded into the promises that are given to Israel. What's he talking about? He's talking about the salvation of Gentiles. He's talking about the salvation of you and me. And that we're going to be folded into those promises and experience the blessing of Messiah ruling over Israel. Verse 12, And the Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the holy land. Interestingly, everybody talks about Israel as the holy land. This is the only place in the Bible where the Bible calls Israel the holy land. And he doesn't mean the land is holy. He means God will sanctify his people. God will cleanse his people so that it will be a holy place for God to dwell. Judah will be his portion. They'll be his people. They'll be his inheritance as it were. And he says at the end of that verse, and I will again choose Jerusalem. This is a phrase we've seen previously. He will keep choosing Jerusalem, Israel to be his. And because of that, he says, verse 13, be silent, all flesh. He's not contradicting what he's just said. Sing. He's saying, be silent. Don't complain. Don't grouse. Don't be embittered. Don't speak against the Lord. Be silent and in awe of his grace to his people. Why? Because, end of the verse, he is aroused from his holy habitation. He's awakened. Not that God was sleeping. But he is getting up to leave his holy habitation in heaven to come to his holy habitation on earth and be with his people. Sing for joy because he's coming. That's our future, friends. That's the future for Israel. It's the future for Judah. It's the future into which we have been enfolded. That's what we cling to. That's where our hope is. In his book, The Next Story, Tim Challies reminds us of an event from exactly two decades ago now. He writes this. In 2002, the National Science Foundation combined forces with the Department of Commerce to create a report that attempts to peer two decades into the future, 22 to 2022. They write this in the report. Understanding the mind and brain will enable the creation of a new species of intelligent machine systems that can generate economic wealth on a scale hitherto unimaginable. Within a half century, intelligent machines might create the wealth needed to provide food, clothing, shelter, medical care, a clean environment, and physical and financial security for the entire world population. Intelligent machines may eventually generate the production capacity to support universal prosperity and financial security for all human beings. Hmm. Thus, the engineering of mind is much more than the pursuit of scientific curiosity. It is more even than a monumental technological challenge. It is an opportunity to eradicate poverty and usher in a golden age for all humankind. Okay, we're two decades later. Let's test. Golden age. What do you think? Yay or nay? I'm with you on the nay. Uh, the National Science Foundation and the Department of Commerce have slightly missed the mark. But there's a golden age coming with Jesus Christ, our Savior. And the promise of the prophecy of that day and that time that we have seen in this chapter is to be our comfort. That's our strength. It was comfort for Judah in the day of Zechariah. We should note that shortly after this, they finished rebuilding the temple. 
And it should be a comfort to us as well. God has not overlooked sin. He has not forgotten Israel. He has graciously enfolded us into the promises that have been given to Israel for her salvation. So we too have hope. Oh friend, in this broken, ungodly, hostile world, be comforted by God and the revelation of His plans for judgment and blessing. Father, thank you for these visions. They were, they were good for Judah two and a half millennia ago, and they are good for us today. They are our hope and our confidence, not because of what we are, but because of who you are and what you are doing. For what you are doing is what you've always been doing, and that is you are redeeming your people for just the right time. And you will bring about your salvation in the end at just the right time. And we are comforted by that. We look at the brokenness of this world and we do not despair because we look at the coming of our Messiah who is our hope and He is our comfort. Thank you, Father, for Him and this message we pray in Christ's name. Amen.